I'm shocked I didn't know there was this many people that weren't at the lake this morning. <laughs> Welcome again. Wedged in between Kevin's passage he covered last week, Paul's admonishing the church at Philippi to help resolve conflict in the church between two female leaders in the church. That's Philippians 4, 2, and 3. Waged in between that and an incredibly famous passage of scripture, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, really that Josh was talking about in a way just now. Lee will cover that next week. A famous passage where Paul admonishes Christians not to be filled with anxiety, but to fill our minds and our hearts and our souls with the peace of God as we reflect on Jesus. In between those two passages is a little hinge passage where Paul kind of goes ecstatic in the spirit just for a minute. And he says two short, simple little verses, Philippians 4, verses 4 and 5, and that's my assigned text this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. And then he says something that really is difficult to translate. The Greek word is, he said, let your gentleness or your reasonableness, it's often translated. We'll talk about that word in a minute. Be evident to all. And then he says another sentence, the Lord is near. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Let me make some comments about these two short verses first. There are two separate but related commands that Paul is issuing here. And he's assuming it won't be easy to rejoice in the Lord at all times, especially in the midst of conflict and divisiveness or tough circumstances, maybe even where you're being attacked. But he says you can do it anyway. And not only can you do it, you can do it publicly in a way that others see you and see your gentleness, your consideration, your kindness, your gracious spirit, even if you're being attacked or undergoing hardship or suffering. Paul also assumes you and I have the capacity to tap into the Holy Spirit inside of us and obey his command to rejoice in the Lord always and to be kind and gracious when we're doing it. Is there a ringing that or is it just in my ear? Do I need to pick up another mic? We got it? Okay. Rejoice is from the root word for joy. It literally means a public celebration of God's goodness. The Greek word translated gentleness or reasonableness, and I'll probably blow the translation. I think it's epiacus is the way you pronounce it. Maybe not. But it means a lot. Reasonable, big-hearted, agreeable, considerate, ready to forgive, gracious, gentle, not retaliatory, not my rights oriented. By the way, just a little thought for you. Just because you have a right to do or say something doesn't always mean it's the right thing to do or say. Just wanted to throw that out there. All or everyone means that our rejoicing in the midst of trouble will be a testimony even to mean-spirited people, whether they're Christians or not, as well as an encouragement to Christ followers who literally are trying to live out a Christian value system. The phrase, the Lord is near, has two meanings. Number one, 
Paul, like most first century Christians, believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He lived with a longing for Christ's return to destroy evil and make all things new. And so do I, and I hope you do too as well. He wanted to be ready. That's one reason he said that. But there's another reason he said that. He also meant that the Lord is near to all of his children all the time. And we could revel or celebrate or rejoice in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ because we have a special relationship with Jesus if we really know him. There's a practical sense in which it's just a command to Jim, to you. Jim, center your mind, your heart, your emotions in Christ, even in the midst of conflict or, as we'll see next week in Lee's talk, hard or difficult times. When times get especially hard, however, almost everyone, let's be honest, struggles to some degree. Most of us raised our hands just a few minutes ago when Josh asked us with anxiety or even depression. You know what? This will comfort you. It comforts me. Paul did. In fact, he confesses it. You want to look at it later? It's 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 through 10. Read it. He says he was depressed even to the point of death. He wanted to hit the exit button and check out. When he was faced with undisclosed extreme troubles, he says, in the province of Asia. He says, however, that the prayers of other people helped pull him through it. That's incredibly important to note. Again, the phrase, in the Lord. I want to comment on that. We have to know someone well to have full confidence in our relationship with that person and to find great joy in that relationship. Relationships can be incredibly painful, but they can also be incredibly joyous. There are people, some of them sitting on this row right here, that I love to be around. I love to be around. They bring me great joy and delight. But you know what? I've gotten to know those folks over a period of time. Your relationship with Jesus is no different. We get to know Jesus well to some degree by spending time trying to learn his value system. What he loves, what he hates. And there are some things he hates. How he relates to people, how he related to people when he was on earth. What he said about heaven and hell, and he had a lot to say. What he said about right and wrong, his lifestyle, how he lived. What he said about how I ought to live. What he said about how I ought to think and what I ought to think about. And what I ought to say and do. And how I should spend my time and my money. He had thoughts about that and he communicated those thoughts. They're in this book. <laughs> So I would highly recommend that you daily spend time in this book if you're serious about knowing Jesus deeply. We can also have confidence and find joy in here because we've developed, and I hope you are developing, a relational history with Jesus. I've got a long relational history with Jesus, and I hope you do. Spending time in prayer, worshiping him, wrestling with him, even trying to bargain or negotiate with him. It doesn't usually work very well. That part doesn't. But talking to God and being honest with him, worshiping him, asking him for help, thanking him for his past faithfulness and learning, and it does require learning, how to hear his voice, the voice of his spirit.
The deeper the relationship you have with Jesus, the greater your capacity to find joy in the midst of conflict and trouble and hard times. Just a few other passages. There's lots more, but I picked out a few to just spike the point about joy and peace. First James 1 verses 2 and 3. James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. I think I'm going to try another microphone. Let's go with this one. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may again be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Then Galatians 5, 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want to talk about now about something specific I want you to consider celebrating on this 4th of July. I didn't intend to talk about the 4th of July in context of these two verses, but the Lord has made clear to me over the past two weeks that he wanted me to weave the two together. Today is the 4th of July, we all know that, a time we celebrate the birth of our nation. I want to give us all something to celebrate and find joy in this Independence Day 2021. Regardless of how jaded you may have become about our country, the United States of America, it still is and has been an exceptional experiment let me say that word again. I'm not embarrassed to say it. It is an exceptional experiment in freedom and liberty. Founded to a large part on Judeo-Christian principles. It's not perfect, but it is still a place that millions of people, maybe billions on this planet, would leave their country in a heartbeat if they had the opportunity to come here and spend the rest of their lives here because of the opportunities and the quality of life it offers. I want to share with you now some unique parts of American history that many of you may not be aware of. America has a history of Christian revivals that I think it's safe to say is like no other nation on earth. Now, that's not to say that God has not brought great revivals to other parts of the world and other nations on earth. He certainly has over the last 2,000 years. I know that. In fact, some of those revivals have exceeded any one revival that's happened on American soil. There are powerful movements of God going on today. Most of them are not in America. They're in other parts of the world. We talked about one a few weeks ago, a strange place if you hadn't heard it. There's a huge revival going on right now in Iran. But what's unique about American revival history is the sheer number of revivals in our relatively short history as a nation. Let me just add to 
If you've never been involved in a movement of God's spirit that's really kind of wild and out of control, strange spiritual things happen in revivals. They just do. They've been documented throughout particularly American revival movements throughout the last 300 years. Spiritual excesses, if you will. So don't be surprised if those things happen. Now, I want to name now a few American revivals and just make some comments about them. And let's celebrate this part of American history and take joy in it this morning. Let's start with the first great awakening, 1734 to 1743. It started with a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Most of you have probably heard of Jonathan Edwards. He preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He read that, by the way, with no emotion, very dry. He preached at a little church in Northampton, Massachusetts. He spent years and months of fruitless labor there. And then finally, one day, revival just broke out, and it spread throughout all the colonies. Another famous preacher that preached during the uh, First Great Awakening was George Whitfield. He preached up and down the Atlantic seaboard. It's estimated Whitfield preached to 80% of the entire population of the colonies, a population of about 900,000 people. Think about that. He did it on horseback with no way to mass communicate. There were thousands of conversions in the first Great Awakening in American history. Then there was the second Great Awakening. I'll talk a little bit more about the time in between those two in just a minute. It went from 1794 to 1840. It was a rather lengthy movement of God. I want to read to you now the state of our nation. You're going to be surprised at this if you don't know this. In 1783, right after the Revolutionary War, you're probably going to be shocked. I was. I read this several years ago for the first time. This is a church historian writing in that day, right after that day in time, and another church historian is quoting what the first church historian wrote down about what was happening in 1783. Now, keep in mind, the first Great Awakening had ended about 40 years before this. And this is what America looked like in 1783. There was an unprecedented moral slump following the American Revolution. Drunkenness was epidemic. It is estimated that out of a population of 5 million people, 300,000 were confirmed drunkards. Profanity was part of just ordinary, everyday language. For the first time to this point in American history, women were afraid to go out of their houses at night. Bank robberies were weekly and sometimes daily occurrences somewhere in the colonies. A poll at Harvard University, hear this, discovered not one believer in the student body in 1783 at Harvard. The great church historian Dr. Ken Scott Latterette wrote of this period, it seemed that Christianity was being ushered out of the affairs of men. Wow. The Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, our most famous Chief Justice, his name was John Marshall. He was a devout Christian. He wrote to a friend during this period of time, the church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. But once again, God stirred a heart of a young pastor by the name of Isaac Bacchus. 
to realize the necessity of united prayer to bring about revival. He wrote a paper entitled, A Plea for the Revival of Religion. It was distributed to pastors of every denomination, pleading for them to set aside the first Monday of each month to open their churches all day for prayer. Prayer for revival. Almost every denomination responded, Congregationalists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Independents. They came together in local churches and began to pray. The answer to this united prayer and fasting became known as the Second Great Awakening, which lasted nearly 50 years. God did amazing things in response to the unified prayer and fasting of his people. Millions of people were converted over the next 45 to 50 years. The frontiers of America, if you've never heard about those revivals, they were really, really wild. Thousands of people being slain in the spirit with preachers preaching from stumps uh, in places like Cane Ridge, Kentucky. The frontier of America had a particularly strong visitation of God through camp meetings, which not only caused the church to grow, but gave order and moral stability to life on the frontier. Public education, the missionary movement, the roots of the abolition of slavery, all came out of the Second Great Awakening. More than 600 colleges were started by different revivalists, most of them filled with, with teachers and with students that were Christians. The church began to be, again, a great influence on society. This and other illustrations illustrate that historically, believers have often viewed their time as hopeless. Sound familiar? They found that when they started to pray and fast, God heard them and brought revival in the church and an awakening to the land. That was incredibly encouraging when I read it again this past week. Moving to a next revival in American history. It's called the Businessmen's or the Prayer Revival of 1857 and 1858. A guy by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear, a New York City businessman, convinced his pastor to open up the doors of their church at noon once a week at first and eventually every day. He had a little simple prayer meeting. You know how many people showed up the first week? Six. The next week, 20, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it spread, and it spread outside the borders of our country, and it's estimated that 2 million people came to Christ through what they got started at a simple little prayer meeting. And this one I had not heard of, I'd forgotten about it at least. It's called the Civil War Revival. You may have never heard this. It happened among troops in the bloodiest war our nation's ever fought, a terrible, awful war to end a terrible blight on our nation, a great, the great national sin of slavery. Between 1862 and 1865, by the way, it started with Confederate troops. A revival broke out. And over the next four years, about 300,000 Confederate and Union troops were converted during the Civil War. Maybe many of you didn't know that one. Then there was the great urban revival starting in about 1875 to 1885. The person most associated with those, you probably know his name, Dwight L. Moody, started in Chicago, 
spread to most of the urban centers in the United States and outside the borders. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people were converted here as well. Jump forward to the 20th century. One you probably know a lot about, some of you do. The Azusa Street Revival. That's what launched the first revival, large revival in the 20th century. Started in 1906. It was a Pentecostal movement that was birthed out of this revival. It was led by an African-American holiness preacher by the name of William Seymour. Then dozens of post-World War II spiritual awakenings, movements of God revivals, too numerous to mention the last half of the 20th century. Here's some of them. Latter Rain Revival, Great Healing Revivals, the Billy Graham Crusades. Most of you know about that. There were numerous revivals on college campuses. Wheaton had a famous revival, probably the most famous one that spread outside the borders of the U.S. started at Asbury. Then there was the Jesus movement of the late 60s and the early 70s. I'll comment on that more in just a minute. Then there's been revivals like the Brownsville Revival from 1995 to 2000. I had the privilege of attending that. I had the most powerful spiritual experience I've ever had in my life. At the Brownsville Revival. I don't have time to tell that story this morning. It's a long one. Then the Promise Keepers movement in the mid-1990s. Some of us has attended several of those. I went to three. There was one actually in Fayetteville, Arkansas, strangely. I just wanted us to pause this morning and remember and celebrate and give you something very specific to rejoice in and hopefully to look forward to on this 4th of July for God's continuous and faithful movement spiritually in American history. Now, these last few years in American history, most of the 21st century, have been marked again by a sharp decline in morality, church attendance, and in civility in general. America can really no longer be accurately described as a Christian nation, but that's not the first time this has happened. And what God did before, he can do again. He can. And I confess that I've got caught up a lot in the last 18 months, really, in anxiety and fear and sadness as I've watched Orthodox Christian values that have been around for about 2,000 years take a back seat to new definitions of human sexuality and new definitions of right and wrong in general. The moral depravity and the political divisiveness combined with COVID have added to a spiritual darkness. And you can feel it. It's spreading across the land. Charity Stillings, one of our children's pastors, sent me a podcast this week with one of my favorite preachers, John Tyson. So someone I'm going to share for the next two or three minutes I stole from John, I'll just confess. First, we need to remember, there will always be moments in our life where our faith will be shaken some. And we don't need to judge the powerful movement of God throughout human history by my little particular moment in history. Give me an example. About 100 years ago, some of the leading intellects and scientists of their day put forth what's now called the secularization theory. They said advances in science and technology would bring about the death of religion worldwide within a hundred years. <laughs> they were very wrong. 
The world is even more religious today than it was when that atheistic prophecy was made. The 1960s. Let's talk about the 60s a minute. The 60s brought to America some really good things, like the Civil Rights Movement, for example. But it also brought the sexual revolution, riots, assassinations, a loss of trust in government, and a drug epidemic that has not let up. We sowed to the wind morally, to use a biblical term, and we're still reaping the whirlwind. But in the late 60s, if we could pull up that picture, yeah, I love the picture. <laughs> it's my generation. A few burnout hippies in California rediscovered something. A 2,000-year-old gospel. And they radically embraced the ethos of Jesus. His teachings on sexual purity they began to embrace. They hadn't been living that way before. Sacrificial living and the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Somewhere in that picture is a guy that many of you may know by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. One of the most interesting characters in 20th century American church history. He led to a tragic life in a lot of ways, but for a season, there was anointing on Lonnie like no other person I've ever read about. Lonnie probably personally baptized more people in the 20th century, personally, as an American at least, than anybody I know of or have read about. He baptized thousands of people, most of them hippies or ex-hippies. And he was responsible for the movement that really started at Calvary Chapel. And he's kind of the fam most famous heavy preacher of the Jesus movement. Tyson quotes, by the way, the Jesus movement transformed portions at least of American Christianity and its impact is still being felt today to some degree, especially in our worship. Tyson quotes one old man, probably my age, <laughs> or a few years older, that remembers those days. And here's what he said. We couldn't sustain the movement because eventually many of us sold out to the cultural gospel of materialism, pleasure, overconsumption, and ease and personal comfort. Some of you that are hearing me this morning are on the verge of giving up on Jesus and his bride, the church. As it becomes increasingly difficult to live counterculturally in America as a Christian. And you're on the verge, just a warning, of marrying the God of this age. Don't do it. Or maybe just trying to go it alone. You were born and called to be part of the faithful bride of Jesus Christ and to take great joy daily in that relationship and to invite others into that life-transforming relationship. There's still people around you that are longing for more than a cultural gospel of divisiveness, individualism, depravity, consumerism, universalism, inclusivity at all costs, and narcissism, which really are the core values of the new civil religion when you strip away all the rhetoric. Sorry if that was a little hard, but that's the way I feel. The gospel you and I possess 
is a powerful, eternal truth that explains the world in a way that brings hope and life and joy. It can still transform a person and a culture. And what God has done in America many, many times before, let me say it again, he can do it again. On this 4th of July, 2021, let's commit together to pray. I invite you to make a new commitment to pray every day, just maybe two or three sentences if you're in a hurry, that God will bring a great spiritual awakening in your own soul first, then in Fayetteville, the University of Arkansas campus, Northwest Arkansas, and America. Revivals almost always begin with prayer accompanied by a deep awareness of the holiness of God and his presence, then followed by conviction of sin and repentance. In a moment, one of our elders will lead us in a guided prayer for revival. But right now, if you want prayer for any reason, I'm going to invite the prayer team to come on up. Come up, confess sin, ask for help, intercede for someone else. If you want to be baptized, the baptistry is right over here. It's not the Pacific Ocean out in front of California, but it is a baptistry. If you want to be baptized, do it and do it this morning. Right now, let me pray for us. God, you've shed your grace of revival and spiritual renewal in this nation many, many times in the last 300 years. You've brought us back time and time again complete from complete moral depravity. Jesus, please, please, please do it again. Do it here. Do it now. We don't deserve it. But I'm joining with the voices of thousands across this land that are praying for the wind of the Spirit to increase in intensity. Clearing out the darkness and the depravity by the convicting fire from heaven. We need you. Oh, we need you. This very hour, we need you. Thank you for your faithfulness. We know that unless you move powerfully among us, this darkness will continue to spread. But regardless of what you decide to do, and I confess you're sovereign, your remnant will remain faithful to the faith handed down to us by the faithful witnesses who have gone before us. And I'm going to close with the words of the prophet Habakkuk, who lived in a very difficult time himself. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, Though the olive crop fields and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will be joyful in God my Savior. God bless all of you and God bless America. Rejoice in the Lord and happy 4th of July.